Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. This week, I'm talking with Mike Ritchie from Sequel.io. They're a tiny seed batch two company, and we're going to walk through their story, pull out the interesting tidbits, tactical, inspirational, all the stuff you're used to from this podcast. Before we dive in, I want to let you know about MicroConf Remote, which is our virtual summit coming here on September 1st. And new announcement, Jason Freed is going to be answering questions about the process and the journey of building and launching Hey.com, which you've probably heard about needs no introduction. But the theme behind MicroConf Remote is founder stories and all the keynotes and the advice and the segments that we have going. We have a bunch of creative stuff. I'm super excited about it. But each of them is the story of, you know, that app or that founder's stories of launching and building. And we're going to pull out all the stuff you'd come to expect from this podcast and from MicroConf. It's the, the inspiration and the tactics and the strategies that can help you continue growing your business. So if you're interested in that, microconfremote.com, you can grab your ticket and I'll see you on September 1st for that live stream. I'm going to be broadcasting live from a studio here. We're going to actually have a film crew, social distancing, of course, have a few in-person guests here in Minneapolis, as well as as some remote folks like, you know, Jason Freed and others, microconfremote.com for the full scoop. And as we dive into my conversation with Mike Ritchie, he's the co-founder of Sequel.io with his co-founder Tabo Fisher. As I mentioned, they're in Tiny Seed Batch 2. Some interesting things about Sequel. They got their first paying customer within 30 days of launching the app. And you'll hear me ask him how they did that because it doesn't always happen that way. And then how they kept listening to their customers, both for motivation and to keep going, but also to realign the app. And there was a point where they were going to try to go down the venture path and their thought process there and the experience I think is, is useful to founders who might be who might be thinking about it or think it's the only way to do it and then have the the realization of, oh, you know, we don't actually need to to do that. Like we don't need to be a billion dollar company. We can still build an amazing life changing business, even if it's only a whatever, a five, ten, twenty million dollar company. And you'll also get to hear about a massive pricing revamp that they did just two or three months ago and hear the results of that. So with that, let's dive into my conversation with Mike Ritchie. Mike Ritchie, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Hey, Rob. Pumped to be here. Thanks for having me, man. Absolutely. So you know, obviously, folks want to go check out what you're working on. It's SeekWell. That's S-E-E-K-W-E-L-L dot I-O. And you were telling me that you were leading analytics at a fintech startup and you realized the need for this kind of tool. And to give folks an idea, SQL, SQL, it adds structured query language to the apps your team already uses, including Google Sheets, Excel, Slack, and email. I took that from your website. Do you want to give folks an idea, like what are maybe the two most common use cases that customers come to you to to solve and, and that they get a lot of value out of SQL for? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the way I describe the product is in two ways. One, that we are the SQL app that I wish I had at my last startup. And two, that we're really push first analytics. So instead of having to remember to log into your monthly revenue dashboard or having to log in and check new users, we push data out to your team. So if you're you know, a data junkie, you're an SQL jockey, you can write a couple of SQL queries and get data pushed out to the rest of your team in the places that they're already hanging out, like Google Sheets, email, and Slack. Cool. And you started working on this in 2017, but you were able to go full time on it in July 2018. So about two years ago, did you raise funding in order to do that? Or did you have enough money saved that you were able to focus full time? Yeah, so we actually raised a little bit of money. And that's what kind of convinced us to go full time. 
And after that, we decided we wanted to raise a lot more money um, so that we could kind of go really big with the product. We weren't really able to convince people that it was a billion dollar opportunity. And we ended up wasting a lot of time kind of iterating on the product and trying to convince people that we fit that narrative of, you know, the billion dollar story. And then what we realized when we took a step back was people really loved what we had already built. So we you know, made a pivot to double down and really focus on the things that we were great at and the things that differentiated us. So that was that was kind of our our foray into, into raising funds. That's interesting. So you go to raise funds. No one's convinced it's a billion dollar idea, but it's working anyways. Is, is that right? I mean, it was people were signing up, people were getting value. You're making money from this thing. And was there a realization of like, oh, maybe this doesn't need to be a billion dollar idea. We can turn it into a great business anyway. It was absolutely that. It was also our customers pulling us back in. We would release features that, again, we thought would pull us in that billion dollar direction. And our customers would say, hey, we, we don't want this. We know there's already products that do those sort of things, like really fancy dashboards with maps and you know a thousand different a thousand different features or a thousand different ways to look at charts. But what we realized is people really loved what we had built. Our intercom is completely filled with people saying, hey, I love this product. Thank you for building it. And we're, you know, we're thinking, why are we you know, banging our heads against the wall trying to raise more money when we already have a product people love? Let's just find more of those people. Yeah, I mean, that's... I mean, that's really what like MicroConf and Startups for the Rest of Us and Tiny Seed are, are about, right? Is it's like billion dollar opportunities are whatever. We can make up a number. It's one in a thousand or one in 10,000. So that means there are 999 or 9,999 other businesses that can be amazing and life-changing for you as a founder and frankly solve a real pain point. And whether it becomes a million or a 10 million or a $50 million dollar, company, a lot of venture capitals would look at 50 million in ARR as an abject failure, whereas you can build a hell of a business with, with SQL if you get it into, uh, into eight figures. So, so was there a mental shift then where you were like, okay, we're not going to go the VC route and we are just going to focus on building a great product, serving customers and essentially kind of making it a profitable business? Yeah, there was absolutely a shift towards laser focus on profitability. There was also just like a stress shift. Like we just became a lot less stressed out. I still worked extremely hard. We still all worked extremely hard. But there was a lot less pressure of like, hey, you have to hit this one tiny home run of convincing one out of a thousand VCs to you know, give you a million dollars, give you two million dollars. That went away. And we really just you know, focused on making customers happy. So that is a lot less stressful to me is, you know, one by one making customers happy. They're a lot easier to make happy. And that's a lot more enjoyable. Yeah, I, I often refer to that as like asking permission to start a company. Like that's how I have viewed venture capital free for a decade or more. I see the same thing with filmmakers. It's like, if you're a filmmaker, go make a film. Like don't wait around for a movie production company or a studio to fund you. Like you look at, I believe it's Robert Rodriguez. You look at Kevin Smith. There are these independent filmmakers that regrettably put money on credit cards, which is not something I would recommend. But, you know, Kevin Smith made clerks for, I believe it was like $25,000 on his credit card. And it's a black and white movie and it's kind of rough. It's amateurish, but like he went and made a film, you know, he didn't wait for permission. And I think of, of writers as well, like, oh, I need an agent. I need a publishing company, you know, to endorse me in order to, to publish a book. And it's like, no, you don't. If you're a good writer, go write your book, publish it on the blog. Like Andy Ware did, you know, the, he, he wrote The Martian. He started publishing it, serializing it. And people were just like, this is amazing. And I mean, frankly, it's a work of, of fiction, which, you know, is often hard to do that with. If you're writing nonfiction, I, I'd say if you build an audience, it's even easier. You don't need permission to do this stuff. And it sounds like you guys switched that up and said, hey, we don't need permission if customers are kind of banging down our door to use this tool. 
Yeah. And The Martian's my favorite book. So that's fitting, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I love that book. We we had our, um, my 14 year old was probably 10 or 11 when we let him listen to it. And I was like, it's a really good book. There's a lot of F words in it. It's funny. Did you see the movie as well? Oh, absolutely. Have the audio book, have the, the Kindle version, kind of a Martian junkie, I guess. So we were talking before I hit record and I was asking about kind of your two customer avatars, like who are your most common, let's say, roles in a company that come to SQL and, and get value from it? Yeah, the first demographic we do extremely well with is technical product managers or just technical business people. So they aren't developers. They're not planning to learn Python. They're not planning to set up servers and, and web apps, but they do know SQL and they they love data and they, they like getting their hands dirty with it. That customer we do extremely well with. The product instantly clicks with them. You know, the two things that click with them, obviously, is being able to push data out to the rest of their team. A lot of times those technical product managers are the first data person at a company and they're responsible for keeping the CEO informed, keeping the CFO informed and everyone else. The second type of demographic we do really well with is the data person. So, you know, once you get to the 200, 500 person company level, you generally have a head of data and you generally have a few data analysts. There we also do extremely well, especially those companies that don't have really well built out business intelligence. Um, so like a company like Looker, they might come in and, and do a whole you know, kind of project to set up a pretty sophisticated data model and all of that type of work. The companies that haven't done that yet, we also are extremely successful with. I mentioned two earlier, but the, the third one we also do well with is even when that company goes past the point that they have really sophisticated data models, there's a lot of like educations that BI tools do really terribly with, especially some of the, the more traditional business intelligence platforms like Tableau. So it's really bad at pushing data out. It's really bad at doing like ad hoc analysis. It doesn't have any ability at all to share SQL with your team, which is one of the, the core value props of SQL is you can, you can store and tag and search any SQL anyone on your team has ever written. So those value props really resonate with those kind of more scrappy data people. And I, I'd like to, I'm jumping around the timeline a bit, but I'd like you to take me back when you first launched because you you told me that you had your first paying customer within 30 days of launching, which is unusual, I will say. So I think the first question I have is, like you knew that you needed this tool at your, your previous job. Did you do any validation? Did you have conversations? Did you have a launch list? Did you have customers who said, yes, I want that? Or did you just go build it and launch it? Yeah, so I think we did what was the best validation you can do is solve a problem that you have yourself. Um, so I knew exactly what the solution needed to be. We built versions of it at my last company, but when we really productized it and built it into an application, I already knew every single step that we needed to go through to build the product. And I also knew exactly who the target user was and where they might find us. So we launched on the G Suite marketplace, again, sometime in late 2017. And from the time that you know, I started, you know, kind of pulled open Google Apps Script, which is what the original version of the product was written in, to the time we had our first paying customer was about thirty days. Yeah, that's crazy. So th there is a danger with just building for yourself because you can have a problem that is either so unique or that is maybe it's you can't find any other customers, even though other people might need it. Did that any of that enter your mind, or was it, hey, I have this hitch that needs scratching, I'm going to build it, and I'm just going to expect that there are other people that I will find. Yeah, it definitely entered my mind. Um, it also entered everyone we talked to's mind when they were convinced it wasn't, you know, a billion dollar company because they just felt that it was like too small of a niche. And I knew there were a lot of people and a lot of companies that were exactly like us out there. Um, I did not know whether they would be interested in using a product like this, especially using paying an amount that would make this, you know, a profitable and, you know, great outcome 
for me and my co-founder. So we did not know that going in. And the validation was really like, hey, let's throw this together, put it out there and, and see what the response is. And the response was absolutely enough to keep us going. And do you think the G Suite launch is still a viable approach today? I mean, it was almost three years ago. Or do you? Because a lot of these things, they change and it gets too crowded and, and it becomes less viable over time. What's your take on, on the G Suite marketplace? Yeah, you know, I was actually just, it's funny you say that, I was poking around in the forms marketplace, so, you know, Google Forms, and there has been an explosion there. There are multiple applications that have millions of users. I think part of it is education. So a lot of, you know, high schools and you know, colleges and even like middle schools use Google Sheets and Google Forms. And it seemed like a lot of the products were tailored towards solving the problems that teachers and um, administrators at schools might have. But I think it's absolutely still viable to build a business. We've had several kind of copycats come on and launch similar products. I think we've been able to comfortably stay ahead of them. There are a lot of gotchas when you're building something specifically in G Suite. And especially if you try to depend on Google's architecture that, you know, sort of the out of the box functionality of, of G Suite. So the language is, is Google Apps Script and they let you pretty much build an entire application for free, you know, with, within the product and it will run on its own. But the infrastructure has severe, you know, scalability and other limitations. So there's a lot of kind of gotchas in building, building one of those products. And we've, you know, again, been at this for a while and have found a way around all those issues. And, and you guys have been growing pretty well. You know, obviously, as a tiny seed company, I, I see your metrics. You guys have been growing pretty well over the past year or more. Are there a couple lead sources or traffic sources or, you know, what's working for you? Is, is it cold email? Um, there's just so many ways to get new customers into B2B SaaS these days. I'm curious what's working for you guys. It, it, it's a little bit of everything. We have not tried cold email. That's that's on our to-do list. And for anyone that hasn't read it, the book Traction by DuckDuckGo's founder is incredible. Like that's sort of the, the methodology that we're following is is going through finding channels and running tests. So that's cold email is a test we haven't run yet. But honestly, most of the most of the traffic to date has just come from either content, so you know, blog posts that we've put out there, or just answers that we've posted on places like you know Stack Overflow and Quora. So it's it's really just trying to be helpful on the internet and seeing who you know responds to that. Yeah. So in overarching is it sounds like kind of content marketing, but really you focused some specific things on answering questions. Absolutely. So at the end of 2019, which would have been around the time that you applied for Tiny Seed, because I, I believe our application window was the month of November of 2019. But you mentioned to me that you really doubled down on what customers love about SQL and you completely rewrote your code base, which is, you know, it's a big risk to do that. You want to walk me through like what happened, how you made that decision to do it and did it go well? Was it worth it? It kind of goes back to, to what we talked about before is, you know, we, we were adding features that our customer base, which was growing and happy, didn't necessarily love. Like they weren't things that they really wanted. And we were adding those features to try to expand expand that base. We thought, hey, we might be too niche. But what we realized is that adding those features was was making the application bloated, it was slowing things down, and we weren't getting those customers that we were, we were going after with those new features. So in 2019, we basically just doubled down on, at the end of 2019, we doubled down on what customers really loved about the application, just made it blazing fast for the things that they really cared about, and made the app you know, more stable, better performant, and really, again, just focused on the, the features that they loved. Why did you have to rewrite your code base? That's something that I tend to discourage people unless something is really a nightmare because it often takes five times longer than you think and it doesn't solve as many problems as you think. But there, of course, are exceptions to this. So I'm curious why you decided to do that, to do it, and whether you thought in the end that it was a worthwhile decision. 
Yeah, so I'll answer that last question first. It was absolutely worth it. I learned a lot on the job. I did not go to school for computer science. So the first iteration of the application was a lot of Googling, a lot of kind of pasting things together, pasting things you know from Stack Overflow and just trying to figure out as we went along how to build a web application. So I learned a ton during that process and realized that there were some major flaws in the way that the application was designed that were you know, ground level or kind of base flaws. So we actually were able to launch that new version of the app extremely quickly because of you know everything that we had had learned. And we also finally implemented a framework, a front end framework that basically tripled, quadrupled the amount of time that we were able to launch new features in. Didn't triple or quadruple it, but you're saying it, it dropped it dramatically, like cut it in half or more to launch features. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, around that time, again, late 2019, you applied to TinySeed. And I'm curious, you know, you'd already raised a small round, uh, as you mentioned before. You had some traction. I don't know, you you guys were rewriting the app. So I I think you were kind of doubling down on the bet. What motivated you to apply for TinySeed? What what did you think you would get out of it? Yeah, the the two biggest things were, one, we were really looking for a community. So at at the time, it was just, you know, me and my co-founder. Things kind of get lonely, lonely as a founder. And there's not a ton of great communities that are active. And, you know, since we were going in this direction of building a profit profitable company that we wanted to really focus on profit, you know, Tiny Seed kind of popped on our radar and it, it felt like a great program to at least apply to. And then after talking to Einar, yourself and Tracy, it just felt like a great place for us. And and also I spoke with a few founders from batch one. And after that conversation, it was it was already pretty obvious that if you were to accept us that we'd, we'd, we'd want to go in. Cool. And you said two things. You said you wanted community. What was the other? Oh, so the, the cash obviously doesn't hurt. When I say that we raised a small round, it was a very, very small round. So, you know, we were digging into savings a bit to kind of keep keep the company running. So obviously the, the financial stress was a distraction that we didn't want. So that, that bit of capital definitely helped, you know, alleviate that stress. And then with our trajectory, we felt pretty good that we wouldn't we wouldn't need to dig into the, the cash too heavily, but it was just a good a good buffer and a good you know, a good way for us to, you know, put some stress at, at ease. Yeah, that makes sense. So folks listening may not know, but in the first month or two of the Tiny Seed program, we go through the Tiny Seed playbook, right? Where we've distilled like whatever, a decade or more of, of SaaS knowledge. And, and we focus, we start by looking really hard at funnels and different types of marketing funnels, high touch and, and low touch and dual funnels, as I call them, that have a bit of both. And then we really dig into pricing and we <laughs> we pound pricing into the ground pretty hard and, and you know bust everybody's chops like, hey, most SaaS apps are, are not priced correctly if you haven't really you know dug into it. And then we talk about sales and lead generation and hiring. So we spend like five, six weeks going through pretty directive. I mean, we try to make it 101, but we also have pretty strong recommendations. And part of that is that most, we find that most tiny seed companies adjust their pricing in some way. Now, maybe it's a price increase, which is pretty common, but also there's the kind of the changing of the value metric is another big one where, you know, for folks who aren't familiar, if you run, let's say you have run an email service provider where people add their subscribers to your system, then typically you're going to price based on how many subscribers they have. That's what the MailChimp model, the drip model is. And so you call the number of subscribers the value metric. Well, oftentimes that value metric, if you just take a guess at it, you're wrong. And and you don't know that until six or 12 months in. And in fact, early drip pricing, we didn't charge based on subscriber count. We charged based on the number of new subscribers you received each month. And that was a terrible way to go. People didn't really understand it. We didn't have expansion revenue. It was just, it was a mess. And so I had taken a guess. I was trying to zig when others zagged and it 
didn't turn out correctly. And within, I'd say, six or eight months of launching, we switched the value metric from number of new subscribers to total subscriber count. And that turned out, I mean, that, that's what made Drip a great business, right, is the expansion revenue. So all that said, there are a bunch of ways to, to tweak pricing. There are a bunch of ways to, to really start to grow the business. And I know that you guys adjusted your pricing, value metric, you raised pricing, that was a pretty involved process. You want to talk us through your thought process there and kind of the mental state of, of what that felt like to do something that can really accelerate growth or it can kind of break your business. You absolutely nailed it. We were completely misaligned the value that we were delivering with how we were charging for pricing. So we were pricing you know, pretty much 49 or 99 a month based on a couple of different you know, feature gates and then charging 19 more for each additional user. And the fact was that people could get a tremendous amount of value out of the product by just having one user sign in. So they might even sign in with a like, you know, data at their domain.com. And then they can do an absolute ton of damage with the product. They can do um, a ton of automations and we get a $49 monthly charge out of it. So the strategy was to better align, again, what, what the value we were delivering with the cost or the price of the product. So the first thing we did was to try to base it on sort of a sliding scale. So like in your your example of an email provider, the analogy would be to charge based on the pure number of emails that you were sending and just factor it up by some some cost per email. And after getting feedback from both our customers, some you know trusted advisors, tiny seed founders and, and yourself and, and Einer as well, we realized that, that was going to be way too confusing. Not enough people were going to understand how many what we call runs they were going to need coming into the product to really be able to pull the trigger and, and sign up for, for a trial with the product. We kind of went back to the drawing board and decided to just make it tiered, but based on that same metric, so that if you have, say, 10,000 runs, that feels like a lot. Customers were you know willing to at least try to start a trial there. What we really didn't want to do is like nickel and dime and have your price change you know, from month to month and fluctuate every month. So that strategy and that pricing model, we launched in April. And, you know, you said the emotional side of it, that was really stressful. Um, we were really worried about whether or not customers would be, you know, existing customers would be confused, like, hey, I, you know, this is the way I pay today, but you're not, now you're offering this type of pricing, or whether or not we were going to have just a huge drop off in you know, trial signups. And we don't really have the sort of volume that you can A-B test something like this. We went ahead and just you know, launched it and then tracked metrics cl closely. So the first thing that happened was that trials did drop. We had also at the same time removed our quote unquote free plan. That was what we attributed most of the drop to. Relaunched with a, a continued kind of free or basic plan and saw trials tick back up basically to where we were before, before the pricing change. So, you know, once we got to that point, we felt comfortable and confident in the change. And then two to three weeks later, when um, those trials started to convert, we felt great because we started seeing customers that would have been paying, um, you know, $49 a month were now in the 150 or, or, you know, higher plan. And they were all happy. They understood the pricing. They all got unlimited users, which I think used to cause some angst is that, oh, should I, you know, should I go around the system, create this like data at mydomain.com? to try to skirt the per user pricing. And now that people have unlimited users, they sign up their entire team. So 12, 15, uh, we have one company that has over 300 users now. And that never would have happened before, you know, without the unlimited pricing. So yeah, we're extremely happy with the results. I think we, we definitely have some work to do, but it honestly probably couldn't have gone any better. 
Yeah, that's great to hear. And I mean, it, it is always stressful, you know, to add or remove credit card up front, to launch a freemium plan, to launch a lower price plan, to remove your low price plan, to increase prices, to change your value metric, any of these things. It's terrifying as a founder because you're, you know your numbers and you know how many people should be converting at this rate and, and suddenly everything goes sideways and you really can damage your business or you can cut your business in half or you can double it or triple it overnight. And obviously the goal is to get to the point where you are doubling or tripling that with the same amount of, of effort. And that's the thing. I mean, I've been beating this drum like the number one, the biggest lever in SaaS or really in any business is your pricing, right? Because instead of having to build new features, instead of having to find more customers, instead of having to you know add more things or get them to invite more users or whatever, you just change a number. You know, you change a number on a screen and in your Stripe account. And obviously there's more to it than that. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but realistically it's the least amount of effort if you can if you can optimize that price to accelerate growth. The other thing I want to touch on is, you know, you mentioned before you're doing per user pricing or per seat pricing as I would typically talk about it. And for, for folks listening, like the rule of thumb is if two people log into your app from the same team and they see different things, then you can and probably should charge based on seats, right? Based on user logins. But if people can log into MailChimp, two people log into MailChimp, they see the same thing. So you don't want to charge as a rule, you know, based on seats because people will do exactly what you said. They'll just set up a data at or a, or a support at, you know, they share logins. And at that point, they're trying to work around it and it just doesn't make sense. So it, it makes a lot of sense that you've moved away from it. So folks have an idea. I mean, now your plans, you know, you talked about what your plans were before and now you have a you do still have a free plan with you know, some manual runs, but as soon as you start automating things, you have a $50 a month, $150, $300 a month, and $500 a month. And when this works, it's magical. It's a massive lever. So it's been about two months since you changed pricing, and it sounds like, you know, obviously you said you still have work to do, but it sounds like uh, that was the right choice for you. Absolutely. And, and I think, honestly, the only work is that, that 500 plan, you know, tapping it out or, or capping it there. I think is where we we might need to go next is we don't really have that like enterprise call us type tier and that's probably where we need to add. You know as as we start to wrap up I had this thought like back before we sold drip there were certain things that we were trying to automate on a recurring basis and I remember always having to go to Derek my co-founder to say all right I need our customer support person to have a button in our admin console that allows them to like downgrade someone from this plan to that plan or allows them to add, there were different add-ons someone could do, right? I, I'm going to pay 30 bucks a month and I get the Salesforce integration or just little things like that. And all it was, was a, it was a SQL query, right? In essence, it was, he would go into the Rails console and before we had a button, he would have to type it in. Then, then that would get translated into a SQL query that would run against the, the Postgres database. Is that the kind of thing that you could plug into SQL where, hey, I'm going to write this SQL statement once and then I could just come in and click it like a button, like I could have my support person or a customer success person come and click it once. This is a long question, but the second part of the question is there were also things that we wanted to run on like a daily or a weekly basis to notify our customer success person to be like, hey, we think that this big account might churn or here's a list of accounts that are suddenly inactive and are not logging in but pay us more than three or 400 a month. And those are the kind of use cases that let's say a SaaS founder or a small SaaS team could, could integrate or could use? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I can you know, give a concrete example of how we use it internally. We have a quote unquote like DevOps dashboard that just has, like you said, buttons. Um, so there's forms, buttons, and then we even have a way to just edit an SQL table or the results of an SQL query as if it was a spreadsheet. So we have this one dashboard that just has those items on it. 
And instead of a dashboard with a bunch of charts, it's a dashboard with a bunch of actions that you can take. So for example, if we need to on the fly extend somebody's trial or on the fly downgrade somebody for whatever reason, there's a form that you can just you know insert the information. You can even have it pre-populate with the values, the only values that are allowed to be entered for that field and then submit the form or update the, the spreadsheet. So again, it's it's very much of a spreadsheet fill where you just edit it and submit the submit the edits. So that's a, sort of our solution or answer to that first problem. And again, that kind of harkens back to the, the last company I was at. There were tons of operations things that we were constantly emailing our DevOps support for to just, as you said, write an SQL query. And it, you know there might've been like hour long, two hour long t- turnarounds, whereas that DevOps person can write the query once and then expose it to the rest of their team. So that's kind of the first piece. And then the second piece is really exactly what the initial insight was, to, you know, around building SQL, which is kind of push first. People want data and information pushed to them versus having to remember to go check it. And then you can obviously schedule and automate that. So, you know, we have alerts for, hey, it looks like the usage for this really important account has dropped dramatically, like dropped off the face of the earth. We should possibly either reach out to that customer or we should check that all of their automation is working or check that the connection to their database is working. So all of those types of alerts, you know, we have those set up and they only send when you actually need to know about it. Um, so you can kind of trust that it's there if you need it, but you're not, you know, distracted or bothered if you don't need it. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think kind of last question for, for you is, you've been working on this this app now for three years in essence, give or take. Has there been a moment where it was, it just felt like a show? Like where I'm basically asking for the low point. Over three years is a long is a long time to ask, but has it been a time where you've been so discouraged that you, you didn't want to do it or you didn't think it was going to work or maybe when all the servers were down and you thought, oh, we've had a good run. Oh yeah, man. Every other day. I'm <laughs> just, oh, just kidding. So we, yeah, we, mid 2019, there were some times like that. And, and we had, again, you know, a product that wasn't built by an engineer. It was, you know, built by someone that was learning kind of as they went. We had, you know, issues with our server and scaling. We had issues with you know, just financially, you know, running out, running out of cash. So that was probably the dark time in, in mid-2019. And, and again, what really saved us was just listening to customers. Like, hey, we love this thing. You have to fix these, these couple of items, but this is something that we'll continue to pay for and, and that we, we love paying for. So that was both the low point, but also was when we kind of came out of the, out of the trough. So yeah, that, that was definitely the, the hardest point. Yeah, it's so nice to have those voices, right? Because without those customers telling you that, it's kind of hard to keep going. You know, it's hard to convince yourself to keep pushing on something that that feels like maybe it's not working or that's it's really pushing against you. But if customers are getting that much value out of it and telling you to keep going. I have to imagine that was a, a big, big help for you. Yeah, and, and you know, I had built things before that never got a customer. And, you know, that was also... You know, you can feel on top of the world before you get your first customer. And, and we actually joked about this at, at my last company is that everything ran smoothly until we had our first customers. It's very easy to, you know, completely drop your you know, database schema, you know, make massive changes, have your app down for hours or days. You know, the other side of that, though, is if, if you don't have customers, you don't know if you're headed in the right direction. And to me now, that's even scarier. If you're building something, get it out there as quickly as you can to get feedback and make sure you're headed in the right direction before you waste a ton of time. Mike Ritchie, thank you so much for joining me on the show, sir. If folks want to check out what you've been working on, it's seekwell.io. And on Twitter, you are at seekwell underscore IO. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Rob. 
Thanks again to Mike for coming on the show. I haven't done a listener question call in a while, and I think we're going to have a listener question episode coming up soon. So if you have a question for me or for a guest that I bring on the show, please email questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. The voicemails, if you attach an audio file or send me a Dropbox or Google Drive link, those go to the top of the stack, but definitely running low on, on text questions as well. And so would love any questions that you have about SaaS, about building, growing, launching, and all the things. Thanks again for joining me this week, and I'll be back in your earbuds next Tuesday morning.